Well, it's great to be together this morning. It's great to see you. We're, uh, today we're going to be finishing our series on hope, a church in the heart of the city. And uh, one of the things that, uh, that really strikes you when you read through the book of Acts is is what the church was like, how authentic it was. And one of the things we really look for, we, we want, is to be an authentic church. We want to be a church that really does reflect the heart of God. And last week we were hearing about the importance of being a church that cares for the poor, because that is at the very centre of the heart of God. So authenticity is important. And um, as I was uh, growing up, um, there are all sorts of things you come across that are, uh, they look like the real deal, but they're not. I remember being years ago in Boston, in Lincolnshire, hearing this guy uh, t- uh, telling people that he was selling Dresden, genuine Dresden china for £10 a box and a market. And uh, you just knew that it wasn't genuine. You knew it wasn't the real deal. I remember my uncle coming and uh, turning up at the house and um, uh, pulling out uh, this, uh, this big roll-out, uh, um, sh- uh, almost like a piece of cloth. And on it, there were, uh, there were loads and loads of watches that were supposedly Rolex watches, which he was uh, prepared to sell one for uh, about £5 each. I mean, they weren't genuine Rolex watches. You knew they weren't authentic. I remember a guy turning up at our house when we were living on the east side of Southampton, knocking on the door and uh, uh, saying, giving me a card that said, Arboriculturalist on it, which basically means someone who looks after trees. He said, we're working in your area. He said, would you like any work done on the trees in your back garden? He said, um, uh, we've got, uh, uh, we're finishing early today. We've got a bit of spare time. And um, uh, foolishly, I thought he was the real deal because he said, the card said, arboriculturalist. Um, what gave it away was when I said yes and agreed a price, and uh, about half an hour later, he came back knocking on the doors and said, uh, excuse me, sir, you haven't got a pair of shears, have you? <laughs> and I just remember watching him climb across the top of it. He was literally walking on the top of the back garden wall, hacking away at, 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 at these Leylanda at the bottom of the garden. I mean, he was not the real deal. And as we talk about, been talking about being hope, a, a church at the heart of the city, the, the, we really want to be the real deal. We really want to be God's people in this place that make a difference for Him. And this morning we're going to look at a passage together from the book of Acts. You see, the early Christians that we read about in the book of Acts, they were they were absolutely on fire with passion for God. I'm going to read a quote from a guy called J.B. Phillips. It will come up on the screen behind me. This is what it says. These early Christians were on fire with the conviction that they had become through Christ literally sons of God. They still speak to us across centuries. Perhaps if we believed what they believed, we might achieve what they achieved. You see, 
The early church was convinced that the gospel, the good news about Jesus, was the only hope for humanity. Absolutely nothing. Threats, intimidation, beatings or death, nothing could stop them filling the cities where they lived with the gospel. And whilst things may have changed in our world, some things remain constant. In an ever-changing world, the gospel is unchanging. The gospel is unchanging. We still need the gospel. We still need God. We still need a relationship with God. God has created us. He set eternity in the hearts of men. And so there's something and there's an ache, there's a cry, there's a, a void in the heart of men and women that can only be filled with a relationship with God. And the gospel is the answer. The answer is found in Jesus Christ. In this ever-changing world, the gospel is unchanging because God himself never changes. The gospel is God's message to a needy world. The gospel is still powerful. And being a church in the heart of the city, just like it was for the early church, is still fraught with challenge. You see, Peter and John, the story we're going to uh, pick up in a moment, Peter and John had miraculously healed in Jesus' name a man who'd been crippled from birth. When it happens, when this man is healed, he's over 40 years old, when it happens, when he's healed, the crowd start to gather, what's going on? They want to know what's happening. They want to understand how this man has been healed. He was known to the people. And so Peter and John explain to the gathered crowd that it's only possible because Jesus, whom they had wanted to crucify weeks earlier, had risen from the dead. Jesus was the one who could restore relationship with God by dealing with their sin, their wrongdoings, the things that kept them from relationship with God. Peter and John explained the gospel to them. And the religious leaders in Jerusalem, they would have been absolutely indifferent to Peter and John and what they were saying, except that the church was upsetting the status quo. Large numbers of people were turning away from the religious system in which uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees and the rulers of the day, they had a vested interest Their influence was being undermined and and so as a result of that they subtly threatened Peter and John and told them to stop speaking about Jesus. You know, Winchester is no different to first century Jerusalem. The battle for hearts, the hearts of men and women still rages fiercely in the centres, our centres of education culture and power. We too live in a me-centered society where people are indifferent to issues unless it starts to impact an impact on them personally. Many would love to stop us talking about Jesus. And the reason is that the claims of Jesus undermine their worldview. And if they're true, they demand their total allegiance and their lives. So they exert subtle, invidious pressure 
to discourage us and try to stop us from proclaiming the gospel. A number of years ago, we were uh, involved with a, a, a bus project uh, on, uh, in Hedge End, and we had had a grant to uh, refurbish a bus, and we'd had uh, the grant from uh, various organizations and authorities, public, public sector, and one of the things was that they uh, were particularly keen that we didn't do, they were particularly keen that we didn't talk about Jesus to young people on the streets. And some of the young people that we used to meet, I remember this one lad, Andy, would have been in his late 20s, early 30s, and he was an alcoholic. Every time we saw him, he was, he was drunk. He used to drink white lightning and uh, he used to keep the lid on, and there was a hole in the top. It's how you uh, get a, a greater impact of the alcohol. You take in less oxygen as you drink. Every week, Andy would, have, would be in a terrible state. He needed the gospel. He needed a relationship with Jesus Christ. But uh, uh, one of the difficulties was, was that uh, when you take the money... You are somehow beholden. And one of the things I love about, about CAP, Christians Against Poverty, one of the things I absolutely love about it is that they are absolutely gospel-centered. They don't take any money from any organizations out there because they want people to know that the answer is not just in having their uh, uh, financial needs help. They know that actually people have a poverty in their spirit that can only be met through Jesus Christ. That's what I love about working with Christians Against Poverty. The world around us, you see, hates the fact that the gospel says Jesus is the only way to God and, it dem- and demands we give our lives to him. The gospel boldly proclaims the answer is found in Jesus Christ and nowhere else. And the world around us hates it. They hate the fact that it's the only way. Surely there's other ways. No, the Bible says he is the only way to God. The only way into a relationship with God. That's what the Bible says. That's what Jesus himself said. Those are the claims of Jesus. And if they're true, they demand our allegiance. Over the last weeks, we've been revisiting our values as Hope Church. We've been talking about the culture of the church. We've been talking about being a community and communicating the gospel and how we do that and how we can be effective in that. And as we round off the series today, I want to unpack 11 verses from Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 33. We're going to look at how the early church responded to the pressure that they were under And we're going to find this morning that God has much he wants to encourage us with as we seek to be a church in the heart of the city. And we're going to go through these verses bit by bit. And this is what it says in verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people. You see, only a few months before, they'd been a group of individuals Now they were, as people put it, a people belonging to God. The church 
comprised people from all over the known world who'd responded on the day of Pentecost. All had personally put their faith in Jesus Christ. All of them had repented. It's a Bible word. It means turning around and change of mind, going in another direction, going in the way that God wanted them to go, living in the way that God wanted them to live. They had been baptized. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were committed to living their lives shaped by the Word of God. They were now a people. A.W. Tozer uses an illustration. He says that if you take a hundred pianos and you tune them all individually to one tuning fork, all of them are automatically in harmony and in tune with each other. All it takes is one tuning fork. When we come to Jesus Christ, and when we give our lives to Him, and we tune our lives, our lives become attuned, come uh, in Him, we become in Christ. All our lives as Christians, we suddenly become tuned to each other. We suddenly become a people. Who are your own people? Peter and John, it says, went back to their own people. Who are your people? Where do you identify first and foremost? Is it family? Is blood thicker than water? Is it your national identity? Is it where you come from, where you were born? Is it your skin color? Is it your sexuality? Is it your status? Is that where you identify? Is that where you identify first and foremost? Is it your educational achievements? For lots of people out there, it's a football team. Who are your people? If you're a follower of Jesus, your primary sense of belonging is to him and to his church. Tragically, the sense of commitment to the church is diminishing as we're influenced by a a, a very consumerist culture out there. What's in it for me? I remember talking to someone probably five, six years ago in the welcome area on a Sunday morning. And as a young man, he just, he was basically saying, I'm looking at uh, a number of churches around, uh, four churches, and uh, this church I'm thinking about, uh, about whether that's where I make my home. Uh, They've said, if I join them, they'll do this for me. What, What about you? What would you do? I just said, oh, I think probably, you, that's probably, that's where you need to go. It probably needs to be the church for you. So for, we're not a consumer church. It's not about what, what are you going to do for me? That's not what the, the gospel, the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is that we give our lives to Christ. We submit to him. And we're a people who are attuned to one another by the gospel that's changed us. We no longer are self-centered. We live Christ-centered lives. How do you become part of this church? People, we're told, were added to the early church when they believed in Jesus. They put their trust in him. They agree together. In Amos chapter 3, verse 3, it says, How can two walk together unless they've agreed... 
We're a church made up of people who've agreed together that Jesus is the answer, that Jesus is the center of our lives, and we live out our lives together, putting him first. We've recently been doing a foundations course, which is where people come and find out. They get an opportunity to ask questions about what as a church we believe, what are our values, and we've, uh, in a couple of weeks' time, we'll be welcoming in about, uh, around about 20 new members. People who've said, this is where I'm putting my roots. And this is going to be my family, my church, my people. Let me say to you this morning, if you're on the fringes, don't stay on the fringes. Come and make this your home. Do what you need to do. Get baptised if you need to get baptised. Sadly, in the New Testament, you read about people leaving the church because they were never really part of them in the first place. They, they came along to meetings, but they were never really grafted in. In our road, where we, uh, the, 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 the spine road where we live off in Chandler's Ford, there's a house and it's got a, a bit of wall. And the wall in the background, part of the wall has just fallen down. It literally just fell over. It's about a two or three meter stretch of wall. It just fell over. And the reason it fell over was that it's just not, it was never connected in. They just built a wall two or three meters long, but it wasn't connected into the rest of the wall. And so there was a bit of wind and the wall just went, fell over like that. Are you just added on or are you added in? Are you connected? Are you connected in? God wants us to be a people whose lives are connected one with each other. Are you here for the duration? Or until things get difficult or a better offer comes along? There's something powerful about committing yourself to a local church and sticking together through thick and thin. And there are personally so many people I could commend this morning because they've stood together through the heat of the day, through personal difficulties and when things for them in church haven't been easy. If Hope Church is your home, I want you to look around and look at the people around you because they are your people. This is what the next bit of the passage says. Peter and John went back to their own people and they reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. This is an important truth behind this statement. The, the church got together and they Face the facts. They talked about what was happening. They didn't stick their head in the sand. They didn't ignore what was happening. God never expects us to ignore reality. He's a God, we're told in Romans chapter 4, who calls things that are not as though they are. So God is a God who calls things that don't exist. He calls them as if they do exist. He calls them into being. He speaks them into being. But he's not a God who calls things that are as though they're not. He doesn't go, oh, no, that's not, you, you know, you've got a head, you, you, you're ill? No, you're not really. God doesn't speak like that. God always expects us to face the facts. He wants us to face the facts. We're told that Abraham faced the 
fact that his body was as good as dead, and yet he still believed God in Romans chapter 4, verse 19. We need to face the facts. The world we live in, our views on marriage, are increasingly becoming antagonistic to the world around us. We believe, as a church, that marriage is between one man and one woman. That is increasingly becoming unacceptable in the world around us. Our views on sex being kept for marriage. Our views on sexuality, on eldership in the church being one of male elders. Our views on faith that Jesus Christ is the only way. Our views on repentance that everybody needs to turn away from living for themselves and to live for God. They are increasingly unacceptable to the world around us. We need to face the facts just as the early church did. It's really important for us personally when we're facing issues of health, of finance pressures personal issues like disappointment. We need to face them. God wants us to be a people who don't bury our head in the sand and pretend it's not going on. We don't need to be people who are afraid to say that we're ill because somehow if we do that, God won't, it's not, we're not in faith and God won't heal us. We can't think like that. God wants us to be a people who face the facts. The early church got together And they listened to what the people, the priests and the elders were saying. We move on. When they heard this, they raised their voices in prayer to God. Faith never involves denying reality. It always involves facing the facts and then bringing it to God. The first thing these people did was that they worshipped God. They acknowledged the one who was really in charge. What about us? Where do we go when the pressure's on? Do we internalize? Do we worry? Do we fear? Do we get into negative thinking? Do we start running scenarios about what's going to happen in the future? Maybe our first thing that we do is we go to the doctor, the bank manager, the counselor. Where do we go? Where do you go? I want to be clear. It's not wrong to do any of those things. It's not wrong to go to the doctor. It's absolutely right if you're not well, you go to the doctor. Doctor. But I want to say to you, first of all, if God is God, then first we run to him and pray. We need to have a God-first focus. This is what it says in James chapter 5. Is any of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. God wants us to be a people who put him first, come to him first. People committed to the church do things together. We pray together. We worship together. We believe God together. We exercise faith together. We outwork the gospel together. We are filled with the spirit of God together. We are friends together. That's why the book of Acts can say that they were of one heart and of one mind. We're to be a people, warm and friendly, who put God first, love him with all our hearts, all our minds, all our strength, to love those around us as we love ourselves. 
God wants us to be that kind of people. As we individually draw closer to him, we come closer together. We are his people. We're to be those who put him first and put him first. We demonstrate it by praying. We move on. This is how they prayed. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your, uh, your servant, our father David. They, they recognized, first of all, that God was sovereign. He was the absolute ruler. They started praying by focusing on his greatness and his majesty, his splendor. They acknowledged that he was above all and beyond all. They acknowledged the ultimate reality, not the circumstances. They acknowledged that God was on the throne. He was all-powerful. He was able to deal with any situation because he was the great creator of the heavens and the earth. He is our creator. He created us. We create, we come and pray to the God who is immortal, invisible, all-knowing, all-powerful, loving, just, and fair. We focus on his greatness. But the early church, we read also that they say, Sovereign Lord, they said, but they later say, you spoke. They recognize that he's a God who speaks. He's a God who is involved with us as men and women. The, 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 the word is imminent. He draws near to us. He's not just a God who's distant and great and powerful and not involved in our affairs. He's a God who draws near. He's a God who speaks. You see, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they were foolishly trying to keep quiet. They were trying to shut the God who speaks up. They were never going to succeed. God is a God who speaks. He's a God who will not be silent. And when we pray, we're asking for the God whose words who carry all authority and power to speak in our situation. God answers prayer. This is what they went on to pray. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. These guys, they were, they were, as they prayed, they were quoting an Old Testament, part of the Old Testament, Psalm 2. You see, they're talking about the rulers of this world who are united against God. They're united in unbelief. We tend to think unbelief, uh, the, the world around us would, would say that their unbelief is based on intelligence, having thought it through. And Let me tell you, unbelief is an issue of the heart, it's not based on intellect. If that was the case, some, the, 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 there would never be any Christians who were big thinkers, intellectuals coming to faith. The fact that they do proves that the argument is not true. Unbelief is an issue of the heart. Unbelief is an issue of the heart. And we read here that miracles don't change hearts. These, these leaders, these, they saw, they acknowledged that Peter and John had worked an outstanding miracle. They recognized that they were unschooled, uneducated men. They knew that they'd been with Jesus and they saw that they were, huge, they were just courageous. They knew something had happened. Surely intelligent, 
men and women would sit down and go, well, there's, there's a link here with Jesus. We need to pursue this and understand what's gone on. But no, no. Unbelief is an issue of the heart. They're, they want to shut their minds to the claims of Jesus. They want to shut their claims to the fact that Jesus, the claim that Jesus has risen from the dead because the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in that. And so they just shut their minds to it in unbelief. They turned their back. You see, the focus of people's rage is still Jesus, God's anointed one. I was talking to someone at a wedding over the summer, someone I've known for many years. And, and he said to me, he said, Steve, I, I believe in God. He said, but I just don't get this bit about Jesus. He, he was a good man, believe he's a good man, believe he existed, but I, I cannot believe that he is God's son and he rose from the dead. Unbelief is an issue of the heart. We read that Peter and John went on, and the crowd, the, the people went on, and they prayed this. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. You see, the early church recognized there's no such thing as bad luck or coincidence. Authentic Christianity is based on the truth that God is in control and will work his purposes out, even if it looks impossible. I mean, the crucifix, crucifixion is case in point. It, made, it makes no human sense at all. It's foolishness to those who are wise. The cross, way of salvation, really makes no sense. But God's ways are above our ways. His wisdom and knowledge is beyond tracing, is beyond us. His ways are beyond tracing out. God wants us to trust him. He is over and above all, and he's working out his purposes in this world. And so when stuff happens, we look to a God who is sovereign and in control. When things are tough in our life, we look to a God who is still on the throne, a God who is still sovereign. We have a free will. We have uh, the, the right to make decisions. But God is still on the throne. He is still in control. We need to know that we are just pilgrims in this world. We're just passing through. We're here for a few short years and then we're gone. But there is an eternity that stretches beyond for those who love Jesus Christ and have given their lives to him. Our days are ordained by him. We're told they're written in his book. All of us are going to pass Pass away one day. There is a bigger picture that we must focus on. The early church recognized that their lives were in God's hands. And so they could, they could throw themselves into situations without fear of what might happen. They willingly went to the amphitheaters, laid down their lives because they believed there was another world. That this world was just... Uh, was, was an ultimate reality that there was another world coming where God would reign and that they would be part of it with him. And this is what they went on to pray. This is magnificent. Listen to this. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. This prayer is extraordinary. It wasn't long before, weeks before, 
These sort of threats would have sent this group of people running to the hills, hiding in upper rooms. Something has changed. Under pressure, they don't run. They don't hide. They don't pray for protection. They don't pray for the persecution to stop. They don't try to escape from under the oppression. Rather, they simply ask God to enable them to boldly speak about Jesus. That's all they ask. They are courageous. This week, uh, Annie and I, on, on Monday night, we went to see Eddie the Eagle, about Eddie Edwards, back in uh, the Olympics, uh, Winter Olympics in Calgary, 1988. And uh, he took part in the ski jumping, and um, he, was, uh, he took part in the 90-metre hill. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen... Uh, years ago, when I was 18, we went, I went to Oslo, and I went to the, uh, uh, the, uh, the Olympic uh, winter ski jump there and stood at the top, sat next to the 90-metre hill. I want to tell you, it is, it's one of the scariest things I ever did. I remember standing, sitting on this block, looking, and it is like that. And the bottom looks miles away. And they go down there at 70 This guy had never jumped on the 90-meter hill, hill before. He'd never done it until the Calgary Olympics. He gets out there and he jumps. I mean, it's amazing courage. You think, uh, this guy, he's, he's, he's way, he started way too old. He shouldn't ever be doing this. He's far heavier than all the people who've, uh, who are experts at it. He comes last, but I tell you what, he won the hearts of the crowd for his courage. I want to tell you that we are a people that God wants to fill with his spirit, wants to be courageous like that. Not to worry about anything, but to look and trust him. He wants us to be a people courageous and bold. Lord, consider their threats. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. God, stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. God has not changed. His right arm, the Bible says, has not grown short. He is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. God wants us to be a people who believe him. He wants us to be a people who seek his face and pray and ask him to intervene and enable us to be bold and courageous in these days, to make a difference in this city, to be a church in the heart of Winchester that makes a difference for him. There'll be difficulties. There'll be pressures. People won't like the fact that we proclaim that Jesus Christ is the only way. But God wants us to be a people who stand up and are counted in these days. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Over the centuries, the church has been marked by men and women of incredible boldness. I was privileged to know my stepfather. My mum got married again after my dad died. And um, she married uh, a guy called Gil. Gil was, uh, had arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis. He was, uh, by the end, he was crippled with it. His hands were like gnarled like that. 
His shoulders were all hunched up when he walked across the room. All his bones cracked. But I want to tell you, he was the most courageous, one of the most courageous men I ever, I've ever met. He would, he would take every opportunity to talk to people about Jesus. He was stuck in most of the time. He used to go out and do open air in the center of Swansea. He would tell people about Jesus. And he went through a season of about, I think it was about 18 months, two years, where every week they went out, they saw at least one person come to faith. Just telling people about Jesus on the streets. He was remarkably bold about his faith. He would tell me stories about he'd be preaching uh, outside St. Mary's in church in the city centre in Swansea. And uh, people would come to him weeks later and they'd say, I- I'm a chef in that hotel. It used to be the Dolphin Hotel. He said, I- I- I'm a chef up there. I think it was a, a guy from the Philippines. He said, I- I'm a chef up there. I hear you preach every, every Saturday. And I want to tell you, I believe in Jesus. Amazing. Most courageous man. If you phoned him up and uh, you were trying to sell him double glazing, I tell you, you'd never get off the phone. Because he'd be trying to, he'd be, he'd be saying, if you, okay, if I listen to you for a couple of minutes, will you listen to me? And the guy, they, they fall straight into the trap. And he's got them on the phone for about half an hour and they're paying for the call as well. <laughs> And he's telling them about Jesus. And, uh, you know, he is bold and courageous because he's a man who believes the gospel. He's filled with the Spirit. God wants us to be a people like that. He wants us to be a people who are bold and courageous in these days. You see, boldness is, is, is linked to being filled with the Spirit. And the last verse, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was on them all. Just listen to that last sentence. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. If you've ever had an email from me, there's a phrase that comes at the bottom. Much grace. I tell you, we are a people who have experienced much grace. We're a people who need much grace. Every day. Every moment of every day. I want to say to you, God wants us to be a people like that, authentic. Like the early church. It's different for us. We live in a slightly different culture, but the gospel is still the same. God wants us to be a people fruitful for him. He wants us to be a people bold and courageous, a people who put him first. He wants us to be a people who love one another, have the culture of the early church. That's why we focus so much on talking about the culture of the church, putting Jesus at the center Being a people of word and spirit, just like the early church. Being a people of grace, just like the early church. That's why we focus on talking about community, because we are a people. We are a people committed to Jesus Christ. We are connected together. We are linked together with bonds 
that only we can break. He, they're not going to break in him. It's only us when we're foolish and we walk away. God wants us to be a community who love one another, love God with all our heart, love the world around us. He wants us to be a people bold and courageous with the gospel, communicating this wonderful good news. It really is good news. It really does change lives. I tell you, I'm not the, the man I was. Hallelujah. I tell you, you wouldn't like me. I didn't like me. I tell you, but there was one who did. There was one who loved me when I was unlovely. And he transformed my life with the gospel. And he can do it for you if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal savior. You can know him and be known by him. I tell you, the gospel is the answer to every question.